welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. I was thinking about a pastor joke when he was talking about the LaCroix, you know, so we're going to serve LaCroix like some of your faith, lukewarm. Anyways, uh, just kidding. Uh, so I wanted to start down here so I can go up here for the rest of the day. I'm just kidding. Uh, hey, I, how many of you had a great week last weekend? Do you guys have a good weekend? Oh, so many stories. Last weekend was a great week. I, I felt like Thursday was Monday because it took me so long to recover from the weekend. Um, and I, I, I've heard so many testimonies from kids encountering the Holy Spirit and God in a new way where their faith was unlocked and there's this hunger and expectation that God's going to speak to them to radical encounters of God meeting you, healing, um, testimonies of God speaking things to you that there's no way a stranger could have spoke these things to you. There's so much encouragement and expectation of what God's doing. Um, so hopefully you guys are planting those seeds in good soil that God did. Um, I want to say we're starting a new series and it's called A New Thing. And I just feel like we are, uh, I, I felt like some of the words that were shared last week really are paving the way for this thing that God's doing in the midst. And what I want to do is look over the next several weeks at what happens when God is about to do a new thing. Um, and I know that there are, there's a, this, there's a, we talk about seasons so much in the church. It's like, oh my gosh, the seasons. There's like 50,000 seasons every year. Um, but I really believe this isn't a season we're stepping into. This is a new thing altogether. Isaiah 43, uh, I want to bring this to you, uh, frame kind of the series. Isaiah says in verse 18, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I want to fill your imagination over the next several weeks with stories from scripture of what happens when God is about to do a new thing. What does he do? The story of the Bible is God calling a person or a community to partner with him in fulfilling his purposes in their time. If you just look at the entire story of the scriptures, you see there are individuals throughout specific moments in history that God chooses to say, to disclose, to bring his desires, his imagination, his hopes, his dreams for society, for a people, for a nation, for the world. And he whispers to them ideas. And they have a choice. They can partner with him in these elaborate, extravagant, big things through their life, or they can say no. And what I want to highlight is if you look, just I was just reading through the Old Testament, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Israel as a nation, Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, Samuel, Saul, David, Elijah, and Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You get to the New Testament, John the Baptist, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Timothy. These are all individuals who at some point have an encounter with God. God whispers an invitation so extravagant that they're all overwhelmed, almost every single one of them. And then they say yes, and their lives change. When God's gonna do something new, he lets people in on his plans. He invites them into something that will require everything. He doesn't promise easy, comfort, simplicity. In fact, almost every invitation has a level of complexity we don't want to participate in. But when God's doing the inviting, you have a choice. You can follow God or not. And I don't know, have you read the stories in the Old Testament about the people that stayed? No, there's no stories about them at all. There are no, there is no story for those that don't go. When God does a new thing, he invites people to leave something and to step into it something else. And, and the invitation is not always the comfort and the dreams. And most of the time, they don't experience the promise that was given to them. We'll look at these stories. 
But every time you see, you're confronted with a choice, a decision to enter into the, the encounter and follow God all the way through or to say no. So I'm going to look at these stories over the next several months uh, just to capture an imagination for what I think we need in this new thing God's doing. That God gives us an invitation to um, let us know about his desires. So what I want to focus on today is Exodus um, chapter 3 and chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, we're going to read a bunch of scripture. If you don't know this and you're new to our church, we love the scriptures. In fact, we love it so much, we believe that every decision we make as a community, as a people, as disciples, need to be, it needs to be under the influence of Scripture. Let me say it a better way. It needs to be under the authority of Scripture. We believe Scripture is authoritative for our personal lives, for us as a family, for us as a church, as a household. So when we make decisions, it's not what culture says. It's not what our friends says. It's not what philosophers have said. It's not what institutions, education systems say. It's what the Scriptures teach. And we believe that the Bible can never mean what it never meant. Meaning the anchor of our interpretation is what the author intended it to mean. So how we preach is expository preaching, exegesis. We go and we look at what it meant to the people receiving the word with the intention that the author had in mind. So it requires work. That's what Bill, Pastor Bill and I teach. And so I just want to say that because I know there's a lot of debate out there, a lot of philosophy out there. And what I'm realizing is every philosophical argument you have comes down to your view of scripture. Your parenting, your finances, your sexuality, your identity, uh, the way you handle conflict, the way you deal with relationships, the way you make decisions, whether guidance, whether you're taking this job or that job, all of it comes down to your view of scripture. So we're gonna teach that over time. That's a freebie. You're welcome for that intro on scripture. Exodus chapter three. Exodus is the story of how the Hebrews lived in slavery for 430 years under the oppression of Egypt and Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the Egyptian king. And he represents inhumane oppression. And uh, he was the most powerful person in the world at that time. He was known as a deity, a god. And Exodus is the story that begins with two midwives who are living under the oppression of Egypt. And the, the mandate at the time was to kill every Hebrew boy that was born. And these midwives disobey the, the mandate from the regime and they, they hide Moses, a baby Moses in a basket. They put him in a river and uh, he floats down the river and an Egyptian princess takes him. And that's where the story picks up. And so we find out later that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court as an Egyptian who was Hebrew. Um, he sees a, an Egyptian bully causing pain to a, a, a Hebrew, he, he ends up killing the bully and he flees into Midian. And he marries somebody there and we pick up in the story in chapter three. You guys good? You've probably seen this, this on the big screen. Um, but let's read from the actual text, all right? Exodus chapter three. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he, uh, he, he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. I care about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up 
out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It's the story of Moses' encounter. We've read this before. We've seen it on TV. We, we know these from stories. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you've heard of the burning bush. But I want to just capture this encounter. Okay, so Moses is a shepherd. He's tending his flock. And he has an encounter with God through this burning bush. There's so much I could teach on, by the way, about this because it's so rich with deep theology. Like burning bushes were common in the first or in the ancient Near Eastern context, or in the desert, you would see this. But something about the the way that Moses is paying attention to his surroundings in a familiar place enables him to enter into an encounter and step into holy ground. There's some beauty there about spirituality is about awareness. But I'm not going to pay attention to that for a moment. I want to talk about what happens when Moses encounters God. Moses encounters God and he becomes a different person. Now, something transformed. You won't see it quite yet, but something happens in this encounter. But the encounter is not what you expect. So just to get this clear... God changes something in Moses through this process. I want you to pay attention to the process. Something about his story will change. This encounter will change the rest of Moses' life. He's a shepherd for 40 years. This is what he knows. He's comfortable. He's got his life 401k plan mapped out. And then he encounters God late in his life. And everything's history. It is no longer easy for him. In a culture that wants to make it comfortable, he steps into the uncomfortable. But let's just wait for a moment because remember who Moses is. God invites Moses, who at this point in chapter three is an outsider, a deserter, a coward, a murderer. He has no tribe, no people, nowhere to belong. He's not a leader. He has no confidence. He has no self-esteem. He is ill-equipped for the task. What you need to know about Moses is he's the least likely candidate to be leading a movement. He is unimpressive, indecisive. He will drag his feet. He will make excuses. He will argue with God. He is no way ready to obey. He refuses. He doubts. He wrestles. Moses is not some model to strive after. Moses is a companion next to you on the journey. He's got feet on the ground. He's not a saint to be worshiped. He's a friend to stand next to. Moses encounters God and God discloses his heart. He gives him his hope. Here's what I desire. I have heard the cries of my people. There is a crisis in the nation. My people are enslaved by the most powerful system on the planet. My people are in trouble and I need to set them free. And how am I going to do it? By sending you. This ordinary, unimpressive, insecure coward. You will begin the journey that will become a movement that will lead to us as a church being here. Do you see it? Do you see God is looking for people to be change agents? He says there's a crisis in the world. It needs transformation, but it doesn't begin with policies and giant systems overcoming. It begins with you encountering God. It begins with you saying yes to the place you're in right now, your home, your neighborhood, your workplace, your career, your vocation. It begins where you are. The movement of God doesn't begin someplace else. It begins right here with you. I love what Edwin Friedman said. He, uh, Edwin Friedman was a, a, a sociologist. He was a therapist. He worked with the U.S. military and he worked as a, a family therapist and he discovered that um, there was at the time, and it's still today, that a lot of people focus on bringing change through giving data. 
Like, like for example, DISC, Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, all of those things are great. And what, what we've become obsessed with is information as a people. If I could just know the right things, and there's nothing wrong with therapy, but I want to say, uh, Freud has said, I think it's Freud or maybe it was Jung, said that um, if you uh, bring to conscious the unconscious, something like that, like if the things that are causing pain in your life are the things that you don't realize need to come to light, essentially is what it says. But what we've done is we've become obsessed with knowing the things of our past that we don't know right? And this is true. You do need to recover the things of your past and heal. But sometimes we need to step into truth and be set free. And not, it's, you know, it's not always the case. But what I see is Edwin Friedman in his, his philosophy in his book, The Failure of Nerve, he essentially says, look, you don't need all of the data. You don't need all of the information for your organization. As, as the leader of the U.S. military, you don't need to be the expert in all these things. He had a different philosophy for changing family systems, marriages, parenting issues, and U.S. and massive institutions like the U.S. military. What he says is it takes one person to change a system or environment. One person to become responsible for change. They can become a non-reactive, non-anxious presence and a change agent for the system. In other words, it just takes one person to become responsible for the change that's required in the family system. Marriages. Oh, if my husband will just lead the way, maybe it's time for you as a spouse to stop excusing your behavior and live responsible. Husbands, if she would just get it and know what I need and meet my needs, if she would just stop doing this, maybe husbands, it's time for you to be, be the Christ in the relationship. Take responsibility for the household, for your kids, for your family in a way that you step in and you don't enter into the chaos. You remain a non-anxious presence, a non-reactive change agent. This is true for Israel. Moses comes in as that change agent. He comes in going, this is a systemic issue. This is a nation in crisis. How are we going to change the nation by becoming the kind of person that resists the empire on behalf of God? Do you see it? You guys okay? You get this. I'm not, I'm trying to say things that I'm not saying. You guys picking up on some of those things? Okay, good. Are you still upset about my joke about LaCroix? Just forgive me for that. Move on. I didn't mean you. Don't take it so personally. Come on. You're not offended. I did actually. I already did. Go back and listen to it. The first thing I said was sorry. And just so you know, you don't need somebody to apologize to forgive them. Oh, truth bombs left and right. Let me talk about healthy relationships. You don't have to have the encounter with someone else to set them free. I know you know that. Okay. I look around the world and what I see is a giant crisis. Suicide is an all-time high. Depression is an all-time high. Anxiety is an all-time high. We have fatherlessness like never before. Gender dysphoria. We live in a cult of self. We worship mammon. The news bombards us with fear and anger and outrage, and we're on the verge of an economic recession. So we need to prepare our lives for this coming doom. Behind all of it are dark powers influencing, enslaving, and evil principalities that we're not aware of, but we are because we've done a series on it. And in the midst of all of this, I hear the Lord saying, go, I am sending you. Go, I am sending, verse 10, it says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. In this, in the, over the next couple of chapters, God is gonna say over eight times to Moses, go. I was thinking about this, and I already mentioned it, that if you study the scriptures, the people of God are a going people. We are a people who go. When the cloud moves, we follow. When Jesus says to the nations, we go to the ends of the earth, we are the ones that go. It's not missionary organizations. It's not websites. It's not the other people with the separate calling. It is everyone who is a disciple of Jesus. One of my problems today that I think I'm a part of the problem is the spiritual formation movement that we've been part of for the last, since we started as a church. It is turning discipleship into a self-care project. 
and it's losing the mandate of mission. I'm sorry if you're working on your boundaries, Jesus still calls you to the nations. Sabbath is not some religious pious privilege that becomes a rule. It is a way of life that you live from for the sake of those that aren't here yet. Garden church, it's cozy. It's cool that we do one service, but pretty soon we're going to go to two. Pretty soon not all these, these seats are going to be filled and you're going to be like, oh, it's, it's half empty. That's because you're not inviting. Oh, Darren didn't know he was going to oh, shoot. When was the last person you baptized somebody? I, I, this, is, I'm, this is just me as a pastor reflecting. Some of you are going to be like, oh, it's so heavy. Grace, grace, grace. Can I just say it for a second? Like we're invited into a movement of making disciples. If you're a CEO, a stay-at-home mom, if you're a graphic designer, if you are a barista or a student or a professor, you are called to make disciples. There's a great omission in the church. And I think part of the thing with spiritual formation is we're, we're calling discipleship a focus on practices. The point of practices is to become and do the things that Jesus did and be like him and learn to be with him, but we're not doing the things Jesus did. All right, I'll just come off for a second on that. This is like pastoral rants. Maybe it should be a podcast, not a sermon, but we'll keep going. Here we go. (laughs) Now, with the sense of, oh, he lit a fire right now. You're feeling a little warm. It's not 103 degrees outside. Don't worry about that. Today, I want to show you how ordinary Moses is. Because some of you are like, oh man, you really frustrated me. I'm offended. I'm upset. I feel like you just need to give me grace. You don't know where I'm at. I get it. I understand. We're all battling something. Look at what happens to Moses in this exchange, okay? God's like, you are going to set my people free. You are going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to bring the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. And look at what Moses said, verse 11. He says, "But, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go? to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, Moses encounters God and God invites him into his plan and Moses gives five excuses of why it shouldn't be him. I love it, right? It's not, this is not some like hero story. We're gonna get real in depth, real insight into someone's spiritual journey. This is Moses. So what happens along the way? So his first excuse is what we always do. I hear this all the time. We encounter God. We have this sense that he's calling us to do something. Like he wants us to leave our business and do this other thing. And what comes out first is our lack of self-confidence. Like, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not qualified enough. My insecurity, my self-doubt. Moses is saying to himself, I'm a shepherd. I deserted my people. I have so many excuses. And what you're saying is so big, that's not for me. And what is God's response? He says, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So I think um, whenever I, I see these stories in scripture where it's like the circumstances are ridiculously against the person of God, it frustrates me to hear what God does, okay? I want you to see this because it, it, you gotta understand the significance of what God's doing. His response to the insecurity to the overwhelm, to the fact that I'm not, I don't, who am I, is I'm going to be with you. Hey, it's going to be easy. It doesn't say that. It, you know what? The money's going to be there when, after the Sabbath. It doesn't say that. It's going to make sense. You'll have a ton of people right away. It will be successful within the first year. It doesn't say that. Nothing about the circumstances other than my presence will be with you. And as a sign of my faithfulness, once you go through this crazy thing, we're going to come back here and you're going to worship with the people. So it's his presence and a promise. And I think the only thing you can bank on is the fact that his presence is with you. And later on, that will be tested. Because they do come back and they do worship. 
And then, they, then God gets so frustrated. He's like, I'm done. My presence is out. You go into the honey, uh, the honey land and uh, it's going to be great. Milk, honey, all the good stuff. But I'm not going to go. I'm so angry. And Moses is like, time out. No. Uh-uh. If you don't come with us, I'm not going. He's like, okay, fine. God's like, fine, I'll go with you. That's, that's literally Exodus 33. <laughs> but, but stay with me. I know it's funny, but think about this. Moses is arguing with God. Now, I just want, I want your imagination. Jesus does something similar in Gethsemane. It doesn't seem as playful. It's a little more serious because he's about to head to the cross. But he's, he's saying, God, if there's any other way, like, I want to find another way out other than the cross. But at the end of the debate, he's like, look, not my will, your will. And he follows through. So Moses is revealing to us when God often encounters us, it's his presence that gives us, um, that, that is the promise to be with us. It is not the circumstances or the solution to our future. I love what the, um, David Benner says. He says, self-acceptance always precedes Genuine self-surrender and self-transformation. So genuine self-knowledge begins by looking at God and noticing how God is looking at us. So if you're you're in a situation right now where you're sensing God stirring something new inside of you, a business, a a career move, a sense of movement in your life, something new, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to reveal to you what he sees in you. Like, what, what, is the, what does the Father say about what he sees in you? All right, let's keep going. Are you guys good? All right, I'm gonna keep going. Exodus 3, 13. I know this sermon's, the pace is different. I'm just walking through the text. It's so, I love narrative. I love stories in the scriptures. They're my favorite. Exodus 3, 13 says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, hey, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, well, what's his name? <laughs> then what shall I say? I love this. It's so good. It's comical. Like, are you, he's like, now he's thinking through this process. He's like, all right, I, I'm, you're going to be with me. Okay. Now let's say I go to the people and they're like, well, what's his name? What do I say? The excuse, in my opinion, is about certainty and clarity. Like, who are you is part of the question. I'm not sure this is really from you. Um, what kind of God are you really? I've heard about you. But what we begin to do is we begin to question the calling God gives us. And then we begin to question the God who called us, right? I mean, have you ever, anyone know what I'm talking about? I feel like it's language for those that have been in these situations where it's like, this doesn't make sense. And you start processing, God's whispered something. You start walking, you're okay, I'm gonna do it. But, but then you start, you're like, well, does God really want this to happen? You start asking for clarity and certainty, right? We start asking for clarity and certainty. I remember um, a few years ago, I was at a conference called New Wine. I was speaking as their Bible teacher for the event. There were 15,000 people. It was a huge event. The Brits, they like go away for their vacation a week in, and they camp in tents and they do like all day events, like all day Christian events. They're so committed. It's crazy, but it's the weirdest thing. They will go and camp where it pours down rain, like torrential rain the entire time. And they love it. They absolutely love it. Am I right? Like we have some Brits here. You're like, amen. Yeah. Alex and Hannah are like, yeah, that's absolutely true. So I was the, I was speaking every morning and you know, 10,000 adults. So it's the context is so weird. And I would pray and do ministry time. And if you ever get to this place where you're like, you're on stage and you're praying, it's like people want you to pray specifically. They think like you're more, you know, special. And it's, it's never the case for me. In fact, usually they get worse after I pray for them, especially in those environments. And I tell them that every time, don't come to me, come to somebody else. They're going to do a better job. Um, but this one person, and I got this, this one person comes up and she's like, hey, She's waiting forever. It's for, like an hour of praying for people. And she's like, the Lord told me you have a word for me. I'm like, are you kidding? I'm hungry right now. I have not seen you. I have no idea what you're talking about. This happens. People like, they're like, hey, the Lord told me you have a word. I'm like, okay, I'm going to pray for you. Open up your hands, close your eyes. And I'm standing there and it's just chaos. You know, it's raining outside. I'm, my stomach is growling. I'm jet lagged, all the things. And I'm praying for this person who has this crazy expectation that God is going to speak to her, which that's a lot of pressure, right? You're like, okay. And I'm like, and I can't get this story out of my head. And the story is Mother Teresa, 
um, uh, tells a story about this businessman that came to visit. Um, and the businessman sold all of his businesses, like very successful businessman, sold all of his businesses away and, and then goes to live in Calcutta for a season. This is a true story. And he gets like five minutes with Mother Teresa and he gets there and she's, you know, this little old lady and she's like, how can I pray for you? And he says, um, I, I, I've, done, I've done all of this and would you just pray for clarity? And she like almost interrupts him and she says, no, I will not pray for clarity. Clarity is the last thing you surrender until you trust. So this, like this is from Brennan Manning book. I'm reading this thinking of, it's like quoting Brennan Manning, quoting Mother Teresa about some other guy and this girl. And I say, I can't get this story out of my head. I'm just going to share it. I share the story. She starts weeping. She's like, Darren, I have sold all of my businesses. I am so successful and I have all this money and I've been asking God for clarity on what to do next. Trust. You see, I think what happens when we want the clarity we want certainty, is we miss the invitation, which is what God does next. Verse 14, look at He says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You're like, it's so hilarious. It's like, wait, what? God also said, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I am. Moses is given a name. What is a name? It's an invitation into relationship. I want certainty, clarity about the future and the direction. I want to know it's really you. And God says, no. But know me, walk with me, learn my, my name, enter into relationship. I am a good father who's always good and always has your best interest. It doesn't matter what happens in your future because I'm there. You want an excuse for your finances falling apart? I am sent you. You want an excuse for the fact that you're the only Christian in this tech company that is so debaucherous you don't know what to do? I am is with you. We want certainty. We want clarity. We want practices to make sense of our chaotic life. But you have a living God that you are designed to live in. Paul says the number one identity you have is in Christ. What happens when you begin to take on the identity that God has already gifted you and you begin to live in a loving relationship with a God who's not angry, he's not judging, he doesn't say sarcastic jokes about LaCroix, he doesn't do those things. (laughs) Imperfect pastors do. He shows up, he tends to the wounds, he nurtures you in kindness, he's patient, he's gentle, and he'll even let you argue even more. I love, I love what, I'm going to quote this a couple times. David Benner says this. He says, the self that begins the journey is the self of our own creation, the self we thought ourselves to be. This is the self that dies on the journey. The self that arrives is the self that was loved into existence by divine love. This is the person we were destined for eternity to become, the I that is hidden in the I am. Moses hears his name. And then he says, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you, right? So now what do we do? You're going to do this thing. I'm not enough. I'm, I'm insecure, certainty, clarity. And then you start going into the what if game, right? Like you start, how many of us live with anxiety because of the what ifs, Right? Like you're, you're like thinking about the flight you have on Tuesday and you're already calculating that you're going to be late. What if so-and-so shows up late? What if the Lyft driver doesn't come on time? What if we're, there's a long line? In, I mean, play that out all the way. What if recession is as bad as the, all of the media saying it is? Watch out. Oh, it's coming. There's an avalanche. You're all going to suffer. This is literally the mainstream media all the time. Can I just get amen? It is 
a cycle of what if. Forecasting the future. I'm going to go and I'm going to play out in my head all the potential scenarios. And I need to know all the data, all the Google info, all the WebMD about the possibilities that are out there. And he's saying to you, I'm with you. But then he goes even further, and I love it. Where's your trust? Where's your relationship? Where's your faith? This is not some deity that's far off. This is a God who is powerful, who's active. He goes on and says, the Lord said to him, well, what's in your hand? Uh, a staff. Like I'm thinking Keanu Reeves from Point Break, a staff. <laughs> Caught my first tube today, sir. Um, You're just getting full, Darren. This is me, fully alive. The Lord said, well, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake right in front of him. The Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And Moses reached out and took the snake and turned back into a staff. I would have been like, whoa. This said to... This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you through power, signs, and wonders. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in the cloak and when he pulled it out, his skin was leprous and it had become white as snow. Now put it back into your hand and Moses put his hand back in, into his cloak and he took it out and it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So God asks a question to you. What's in your hand? I mean, this, this is the story of our God. It's not like any other idol or deity out there. He will take the two fish and the five loaves and make it multiply. He will take what little strength Gideon has and defeat the Midianites. He will take a staff because that's the thing Moses has. He takes his computer as a graphic designer. He takes the business as a CEO. He takes the car as an Uber driver. He takes the school and the classroom as a teacher. He takes your family as a, as a homeschool parent. He takes what you have and he redirects it and says, my power is going to flow through it. I think it's about redirection, right? This is what I see. The miracle of the loaves and the fish. All these people are here. You feed them. And they're like, uh, it's going to cost a year's wage or more. Uh, we've got two fish and five loaves. And she's like, I can use that. Right? And he takes it. He gives thanks. He redirects it. What little I have. Thank you, God. And then he breaks it and redistributes it to his disciples. And they take it and a miracle happens. You see, what, what I love is it's Jesus modeling redirection. What do you have in your hand? Faith this much? Great, I can use a lot with that. Some dry bones? Great, I got an army. A sea? Cool, touch it. Let's, let's make a highway. Do you see, this is the story we're talking about. God is gonna do something new. He's not gonna use someone else. He's gonna use you. I love what um, Hudson Taylor, the missionary, once said, he said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. You just need to reimagine what is in your hand. Okay, a couple more. We're almost done. Exodus 4 of 10. Moses hears that, and then I love it. Excuse number four. You guys tracking this? This great hero with five excuses. Moses said, well, pardon your servant. You know, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. This one always gets me because it's the most real to us. My weaknesses, my insecurities, my past, my issues prevent me from saying yes, right? The list that you've carried since childhood that's in front of you, well, God could never use me because of this. And in this case, scholars debate, was it a stutter? Was it that he was slow to speak? speak? Was it that he grew up Hebrew, but he didn't really understand Egyptian? And some say he couldn't speak Egyptian at that time. So God's sending this guy who can't do that. So what you have is reality. All of the things that I know that are not good about myself prevent this from being true. All 
of my failures and my weaknesses. And what what does God do? He says, who gave human beings their mouths? (laughs) It's like, but this is important, okay? Because this is what, I'm going to keep reading this in a second. It says, who gives them, who, who makes the deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and we'll teach you what to say. But, but just keep this up for a moment. I love this because first in this ancient Near Eastern context, Moses doesn't really know who the God of his ancestors is. He doesn't know that actually he's Yahweh. He is the creator. Because they live with a, a paradigm that there are many gods. There are many deities. There are other gods that have territories and powers, which is why it's so significant when, when Moses goes and the 10 plagues take place, he's literally assassinating 10 different Egyptian gods, ending with Ra, the son of God. of uh, Ra is the sun god, and the son of the, Ra was the Egyptian pharaoh. And so the Egyptian son that was killed in Exodus, the Egyptian pharaoh's son that's killed is the death of the son of God, all, I mean, you're like, you can't make this stuff up. No, you can't. You can't make this up. It's so good. The point is he is the one above it all. He reigns above it all. Again, so let me get back to this. What does God do when we're dealing with a calling, when he's about to do a new thing? He calls you into something, a great purpose, but then he invites you into a relationship of trust. But more than trust, it's to have a right perspective of God. To understand who, who is this God that we serve? Is he a God that can use staff? He can use uh, uh, what, what's in your hand to prove his power? Yes, he is. But he's also a God that can heal your weakness, that will cover your weakness, that will empower you to get up in places and stand. I used to love this text. You want to know why? I never wanted to preach in my entire life. If you know the origin story of Garden Church, we had... When we started the Long Beach Project, a pastor who was working at Rock Harbor as a teaching pastor, and I thought I would be like Todd Proctor, the lead pastor who doesn't really teach. At the time, the model I had was Mike Erie, the teacher, Todd Proctor, the lead pastor, and I was so anxious. I had panic attacks before every sermon. In the basement of Cohiba, or in the basement of uh, First Christian Church in Cohiba at night, I would have panic attacks every single Sunday. I would preach for 12 minutes thinking it was 45 minutes. Reading faster than I read now, if you can imagine. Apologizing every five minutes because of my my mistakes. And the reason um, I love this is because I understand what it's like to be called to do something, knowing it's from God, and be overwhelmed by the fear. I remember Alex encouraging me early on. She's like, I wish I had what you had. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm having a panic attack on my back, breathing, counting my breaths. I remember this. It's like, I wish I knew what the will of God is for my life. You do, and you just have to run towards your fear. Some of you, that was good. That's why, that's why she got anointed as a prophet. She's got the word of the Lord inside of her. By the way, I just want to say this for those of you that were here last week. Chris Valentin has only anointed two people his entire life as prophets. Alex was the second one. It's a big deal. And and what I want to say is a prophet is not welcome in their own home, which is why he did it. Because some of you don't want to see that. All right, we'll keep going. So the point is, fear might be the bullseye for you, right? And you, so you have, you know what it is you're supposed to do. And now you're overwhelmed. Oh my gosh. And God's like, go right towards the bullseye, right? It's like that story I've heard before where if like, if, if the crows were smart and the ravens were smart, they would go to the fields with the scarecrows because that's where the fruit is. You guys catch it? Like the, the, the produce, is, there's a scarecrow there because there's a crop that you can eat. So if you were smart, you go towards the fear. That's where God's leading you. Maybe that doesn't work for you. It works for me. So point number five, here we go. The last excuse. But Moses said, ah, pardon your servant. Just send somebody else. (laughs) It's so good. It's so real. You're like, I get it. You know, it's like, he's like, okay, check, 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 check. He's like, "Mm, I don't want to go. But this is our excuse. I really like my cozy habits. I love my safe, comfortable community. 
I love where I'm at. I love the, the, the comfort of my nine to five job. You're calling me to start my own business, but I love this, you know, how, how, the predictability of this moment. I love Franklin. We've been here for nine years. What if God moves us on? What if God begins to draw us into something that's beyond just a neighborhood church, but, a, but an expansion for apostolic mission? What does that mean? Like Acts 10 and 11, where, where Peter is now hosting Gentiles. And the apostles are like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I was preaching. And before I could say, raise your hand and say a prayer, the Holy Spirit fell. And they got baptized and they're doing stuff like us. Well, I don't know. This must mean that Christianity is beyond one set of people. It's for the nations. What if it's for us to say what God has held, what he's pulled back, what he's kept secret in a wilderness of Long Beach? What if he wants to display it for his nations? That's not up to you. What if it's just saying yes to the next thing and the next thing is going to disrupt all the good things we have going? Are you going to go or are you going to stay? Are you going to go or are you going to grumble? I don't know what God's inviting you into uniquely, but I do know he's doing a new thing. And what happens next is so brilliant. It's, it's God. He goes, it says, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. May you not allow God's anger to burn against you. I mean, he meets them all the way. One, two, three, four. And then he's like, oh, come on. At least that's how I think God. And he's like, come on, Moses. What about your brother, Aaron, and Le the Levite? It's like, all right, uh, what about this guy? <laughs> He's like, he can speak. Well, you know, you're insecure because of him. He's already on his way to meet you. He'll be glad to see you. You shall speak him to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it'll be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him but take this staff in your hand so you can perform signs with it. I love it. God meets him in every excuse. And the last one's my favorite. He doesn't send us alone. He sends us together. How many of you need that, that partner that, 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 that will just be like, oh, you, you're with, yeah, we can go. I remember moving here it was actually 14 years ago, Halloween. So Halloween's a big deal. Not for any of those reasons. <laughs> I, I really don't like Halloween. It's, I, I have to drive an alternative route home with my kids because there's so many creepy houses on my neighborhood, in my neighborhood. Like one that is seriously terrifying. It should be like reported. But anyways, <laughs> I'm secretly thinking I'm going to be like Gideon. I'm going to go take down that idol to the demon <laughs> in night because I don't want to get caught. Um, Who's with me? Let's go. Ah. <laughs> what was I saying? I don't remember. Oh, Halloween. Okay. So I, I, remember, I remember we moved here and it was the weekend before the election. Um, and it was before Obama got elected. And I remember like we were having our first leadership meeting that Tuesday and there was like cheers in Long Beach. And then there was like an event um, going on at the park and we went to meet our neighbors and I remember the church being on stage saying like a whole bunch of non-theologically accurate things and then there was the church on the outside protesting what was going on at this event at Bixby Park and I remember Alex and I like what are we doing like in the middle of it like stumbling in meeting our neighbors and I remember like that was a defining moment this is why you're here and it was my friend was with me because we had left a huge community in Costa Mesa and uh, friends at Rock Harbor. And we were like, all right, we moved here. We're at 24 and 23. We're going to start a church. And none of my friends, we had 40 people in our small group. None of them came, but one person came. And he was with us that day. And he's like, I want to let you know, I'm going to help you plant this church. And my wife and I, we just started bawling. We started weeping. We're like, we, okay, we can do this. We got one. It's no joke. It was the courage we needed. Some of you need that person in your life and they're here, they're in this room and you need to tell them, I need you in my life because this is what God's calling me to do. Walk with me on this journey. And they're gonna say, yeah, that is right. And you're gonna call them. You're like, I'm having a down week. I'm, it's been rough. This is how, and they're gonna be your encouragement. We need what um, Pursuit 90 calls anchor buddies. Right? Any Pursuit people in here? I went for the, I went for the first time in 45 days. So great. Um, 
they were doing an intense workout on Friday, insane, 90 days, they're doing this diet, doing all this stuff, you can read about it online. The insane workout, ultimate Frisbee. I was like, really? We're gonna play it? I was so sore afterwards, I realized what they're doing. So they have these things called anchor buddies, not like anchor people down, it's a climbing term. That, uh, that you, you climb up a mountain, you have somebody that anchors in, that holds you accountable. It's not so that they hold you down, it's so that they can, you can get to the top. Brothers and sisters, we are in a moment of time where the world is so filled with chaos that God, I think, is sending a new person, a new church to say, Set, let my people go. Set the captives free. And it's gonna take you encountering your own burning bush, but recognizing the cost is everything. That God might encounter you in new ways and call you to turn your business into a a space that's used by God for extraordinary things. What I love about Moses, just a couple of observations I'll close, is that he's fully himself in God. And he develops a relationship that creates space for him to question God, bring fears to God, bring uh, uncertainty to God, bring excuses to God, bring his frustrations and anger to God, reason with God, argue with God, and God allows it. God, God in, in, meets him there. I love that. The other thing is that in the midst of all the excuses, all of the fears, all of the questions, all of the unwillingness, Moses still says, I'm gonna go. He's gonna go. So he doesn't have all the boxes checked. He steps into obedience with God because he knows, well, he learns God's gonna meet him where he's at. And some of you, you're not even in the game yet. And it's time to step over and go for it. Last thing I wanna say is when God is gonna do a new thing, he invites you in to risk. The next season for our church will require extraordinary risk. And it's not because I'm asking it of us or the elders are asking it of us or the core leadership team or the staff. It's because we're stepping into obedience. God's asking us as a community to follow him, not into a new season, but into a new thing. So the question I have for you today is number one, what is in your head that's getting in the way of what God put in your heart. I think God speaks to Moses' heart. He defeated the bully. He liberated that one Israelite. He got there too. That was in him. And then a bunch of things got in the way out of that fear. So what's, what has God put in your heart that your head is keeping you from? And lastly, Sometimes what we're holding in our hands is actually the key to unlocking that heart. So what are you holding? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.